0: What rock or swamp have they crawled from out of or under? No, the other way around, from under or out of. I told you I was tired. Did you have a sensible question before I'm ruining the content completely?
1: Welcome to Two Psychologists, for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mick Inzlicht. And we're joined today by James Heathers, who's currently a research scientist at Northeastern University in Boston. Now, in addition to his own research in measurement and psychophysiology, James has become well known as a self-described data thug, which I have to say does sound pretty
0: ominous. James, welcome to the show. What have you got there? No, I wanted i wanted to share something with you before we get started here, because I've got, got a little bit of a theme going on. You guys have got a themed podcast. It's adorable. You ready? Here we go. Oh. It's the sound of victory. Check it out. Big Cranky. <laughs> Tell us about this beer. Uh, it's from a place called Stony Creek in Connecticut, and it's a... Uh, it's a, their take on a, a, a West Coast IPA, and it is a very dangerous beer. <laughs> hey, what's the uh, alcohol I mean, percentage? Um, nine and a half. Whoa, really? Yeah, and it's in a pint can because apparently everyone in Connecticut is completely out of their mind. It's the only explanation I can have for that. It's not a responsible format beer at all. And you have two of these or just one? Oh no! I have got something special for the next one to make you both feel bad about where you live.
2: Oh, okay. Nine and a half percent. That's
0: that. So we drank
2: last time. We had a nine percenter, the Trois Pistoles, but this is this tops that. Um, well, cheers, oh, uh, James.
0: Uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. I, I'm not seeing. I'm not seeing anything down the can here. Uh, so, what is everyone drinking in Toy Town? None other than Molson Canadian. Ah, I know that stuff. You 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 go to the vet and when he's finished draining the anal glands of the local moose they bottle that stuff up and sling it around right <laughs> That's basically right you know I knew you were going to
2: go so high end on the beer I thought you know unlike the democrats
1: you know when when you go high we we don't stay high we go low So a big part of the reason that we wanted to have you on is your um reputation for let's just say data thuggery. Well,
0: I'll I'll give you a quick vignette on where Data Thug is from in the first place. Um it was it was a silly joke of mine of, of which you might have noticed there are a couple. The the, the, the joke it is it's definitely sort of outlived its usefulness, but um it was it was a silly thing. It was a reaction to the idea of like who who, who do you people think you are the the, the data police. Right? this is this 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 attitude i i always imagine when i read something like that i always imagine lady agatha from the importance of being earnest saying it you know who do you think who do you think you are the data police um which is hilarious because the police have statutory power to do things and you know you have a gmail address and a congenital lack of sleep um great okay total power disparity there obviously Um, but it it was, it was more the fact of, you know, the, the police are compelled to investigate things and I'm sort of just occasionally putting the boots to something that comes in front of me. So it's not policing, it's thuggery. It was, it was a silly joke that no one paid attention to for a year until it ended up in an article in science magazine. When Ivan wrote about it, hang on, let me explain who Ivan is. Um, Actually, no, it was Ivan and Adam. Uh, Ivan and Adam run Retraction Watch, uh, a website that everyone hopefully is familiar with. If you're not, you really should be. It's a very, very interesting look at the nuts and bolts of how the nasty ends of the scientific process are made. It is a fascinating website, and it is also the thing I appreciate most about it. It is an international website. If there, are, if there are six papers in the Persian Journal of Inorganic Chemistry that are retracted, they will tell you about them. Uh, if, if the Chinese government is thinking of handing out death sentences for people who are uh, falsifying their data and spoiling the good name of their country, they'll tell you about that too. They don't just cover the Anglosphere, they cover everything they can get their hands on. And they freely admit they're not actually getting everything, but they make a sincere effort to try and cover everything that happens when something comes is removed from a journal is corrected or retracted etc cetera, etc cetera. so as might be expected um if you cite google search then my name occasionally appears so they are proper journalists and proper website organizing lads etc cetera, etc cetera. and they wrote this article they wrote this article and At that point in time, they stuck it in the header of the article and it's called meet the, meet the data thugs or something like that. So this is not what your training or
1: your background or your main line of research is in, right? So as I understand it, you are a methods person, but you focus um, primarily on physio. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, something, something, something like that, um, I did a PhD in a psychology department and then tried to do as little psychology as possible. That's the best way I can describe it. And um, I spend most of any normal day thinking about biosignals. And a lot of the time, biosignals in isolation, not the, the matter of, oh, oh, we stubbed his toe. Can we measure the physiologies? More sort of, what does it mean? How can it be measured properly? Or why do my collaborators keep sending me signals that make me want to self harm? Those sorts of questions, not necessarily in context. So, yeah, a lot of stuff in biosignals, a lot of more general methodological. I think you're about to answer your question here. The the, the question is something like what's the route from one to the other?
1: Yeah, like so you have a full time job which is doing that, right? And so somehow, you've adopted a new and different full-time job of finding mistakes in published research and i what i'd like to know is how you get from one to the other as
0: you said pretty pretty straightforwardly um if you read a lot of i i i am not an enormous card-carrying fan of much of the research that is done in physiological psychology. There's plenty of good stuff, but there's a huge, enormous rump of unexamined connections between ideas and assumptions made about bodies. And there's an awful lot of, I think the right word in context is reification going on. Ah, we took a we took a, a, a measurement of this. It, it helps. Uh, it, it helps us publish the paper. What is it? Well, it is the stress itself. I have measured myself a concept. Please publish my work. I'm a very interesting and important man. Um, the vast majority of that is. I'll be really nice, because there's probably psychologists listening, and say it's a stretch. How are these ideas built out of where they are from? Bodily systems stack up and assort and hold each other's hands and do all the normal complicated things that biology does, as might be expected. How can you hit that with a stick and take a simple measure and go, ah, oh, look, he's stressed. Well, look at him, he's stressed. We've solved the stress problem or the emotion problem or the depression problem or any number of other uh discrete publishable units of understanding a complicated idea you can hit with a physiology stick.
2: Uh, James, I wonder if uh, you could uh, make it slightly less abstract. Uh, so give us some examples of like some, something you might measure and something that you've seen in the literature that people want. What assumptions, you know? what connections do people want to make Do you see often?
0: Okay, I'll give you I'll, I'll, my, my favorite example, which I've been banging on about for years, uh, is the reasonably well-adopted idea that if we take two bands of frequency within the heart rate and we look at the relationship between the bands of frequencies, then we have some kind of index of how much sympathetic and how much parasympathetic information is going into the heart like they were linear quantities. If we have those, then we can say things about how, uh, how, uh, how, how much panic do you experience, like, like how, how much sympathetic overdrive are you in, uh, how much does that relate to the anxiety that you're having. And the only problem with it is the fact that the theory is total bullshit. That's the only problem. Is that the theory doesn't that the theory doesn't work at all? Minor and the problem, problem. Yeah, it's 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 a small it's a small thing, but we've always considered it important in my family. So what what happens on the back end of that is actually kind of depressing. There's research from the early '90s that sort of implies this doesn't work, and there's very very definitive statements about why it doesn't work in. Uh, a variety of different physiology and biology journals for maybe the last 15 years or so but it's a theory that people still keep using because it's convenient
2: so what you're saying is that you know you can you measure heart rate that's simple you know look at beats per minute and and, and all the various you know it's it's more complicated just beats per minute but you know you measure that and then you break it down spectrally so you know the the the, the freak you know uh, one frequency band might mean you're saying sympathetic activity, another frequency band. Some people have argued might means parasympathetic parasympathetic activity, and because those two things are hard to measure, like you know, there's no direct measurement of those things. Um, the theory that suggests that the the uh, that the frequency of the heartbeat indicates one or the other is really uh, enticing to researchers. Is that am I getting that right?
0: There you go. And now you can see why I got into the business of pedantry.
2: Uh, well, I think it's important, right? Because, you know, it's a complicated idea, but I mean, uh you know, broken down, you know, it's just it's just simply about oscillations, right? Uh and and who, who what was is it the polyvagal theory? What theory is this that you're talking about?
0: Uh um, no, that's a uh that that is uh oh, uh that's a whole different kettle of fish. Um the 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 ratio is called sympathovagal balance, and uh, it pops its head up uh, because the better psychophysiology journals are run by editors who know that this is shite. Um, it doesn't it doesn't pop up in some of the more front line articles anymore. But everyone knows that that's sort of the tip of the iceberg, and there's a hundred other either kind of big production journals that'll take the vast majority of stuff they get or fringier sort of journals, local journals, where it's not being sent to someone who's reviewing it from the perspective of, is the physiology okay? Reviewing it from the perspective of, does it make some kind of collective sense? Do the ideas fit together in a correct kind of pattern? So, yeah, it it happens it happens a lot. Sympatho-vagal balance. Um one of the first things I ever sent anyone was a a a letter to the uh, the the letter to the editor of Experimental Physiology where there's a great paper that said, "Hey, this idea is uh this idea is bullshit because What you think is an index of sympathetic activity is not. It's a kind of a kludgy measure of baroreflex gain. Let's not define that, or we'll all just want to jump in the sea immediately. Um, And all I could think of was, A, this incredibly senior person has written something super important and I love it, and B, I can immediately think of two papers that mean he's even more right, goddammit, and uh, sent them to the editor straight away. And to my enormous surprise as a graduate student, the editor went, oh, those are pretty good points, and then published the bloody thing. So that was good. So that's interesting. So right away you were uh,
2: skeptical, right? I mean, as a a graduate student, to be already pushing back on, let's say, what in certain circles might be accepted methods, uh, yeah, you're already kind of sharpening your, your skepticism even back then.
0: Yeah, exactly. There you are. Okay, oh, he's put his finger. You're one of the. You might be one of these academicals. You're so clever. Yes, that's more or less exactly what happened. <laughs> okay, that's good. Now I, I noticed,
2: James. Uh, do you already finish your first beer?
0: T- t- yeah. Sorry, it just sort of fell. No, in. no.
2: I also have finished my first beer, and Yoel has not even started his first beer.
1: I'm still working on my tea.
0: <laughs> he's, he's seriously still drinking his,
1: working tea. On his tea I'm nursing this tape.
2: do you know the kind of flack we're getting you know kind of the flack that we get online for because of you, wells indiscretions is the only way I could put it we're getting reviews on iTunes now calling our show two psychologists three and a half beers at best
0: like because of this guy what do, do you do? You not want to help, sir? Have you no civic mindedness at all? No, I. Think he he, he has done beer. this delivered me. He's <laughs> he's drinking mint tea to wind me up on purpose. And all I can think of now is how I'm going to make a seamless transition to the fridge to, to get on a bit more business.
2: Yeah, I'm also going to the fridge. I think we should uh, like this will not be a real break on the show, maybe. But uh, let's get some more beer.
1: So before the the mini break, um, you were saying how you got interested in, I guess, misuses of this measurement technology in your in your own area and it kind of sounds like the issue here is people are using these tools and they don't really understand on a deep level what is it doing right so they understand how to get an output and do some math on it and they're like cool there's my dv is that a kind of fair description of what you think the problem was yeah more or less
0: that's pr- that's pretty close and uh, look if you if you know if you know what you if you know what you're doing. And um, I I review a lot of papers, not because I'm a fascinating man with sage insight, but the fact that I can review papers that are within my purview extremely quickly for the simple reason that there's a a series of things that normally go wrong. And if you know what you're looking for, you can find them really, really fast. (laughs) So, I, I don't know, maybe 1,500 words in an hour, and some of that is copied and pasted from other stuff that I've got lying around. I was actually thinking with um uh, uh you I don't know if you guys have met Dan. You, you probably haven't because he lives at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean and his tentacles will get dry if he leaves. But um, we were we were thinking of writing a paper that was simply the like the the top twenty gripes reviewing biocyte papers of things that we have to write again and again and again and again, just writing them down into a document, not publishing it, maybe just stuffing it somewhere so it can have a DOI so people can find it, just putting it in the public domain and then doing reviews by going 1, four nineteen seventeen and you're ugly, full stop end of story.
1: So when you're describing this status quo in psychophysiology where lots of people are just getting elementary stuff wrong to the point where you're getting papers to review on a regular basis where you're like here's the checklist of perfectly predictable
0: things wrong with this how does that happen i don't know ask someone who's 25 years older than me it strikes me as completely insane all the time look this the other thing is I, I mentally remove myself from thinking about or doing psychology as a subject a very long time ago. A, l- a lot of the, the my, my continued contact with people in the behavioral sciences is partly incidental. It's uh, it's more the <laughs> it's it's not quite the Godfather. Just as soon as I think I'm out, they pull me back in. It's not quite that. It's 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 the fact that your skills continue to be useful to other people who are doing this research but only only very recently maybe in the last 6 months or so after a very long time have i started to think about anything to do with how a psychological theory would fit together with stuff that i'm really interested in so just like how 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 is it organized i went to a few i went to a few psychophysiology conferences um and I don't know, man. I didn't I didn't really fit in. There were things that I was interested in that weren't there. And there were an awful lot of people who were within the mechanistic tradition of how did these tools that we have been given fit to the problems that we wish to understand? Full stop, end of story, that's it. So what what do I think about on a day-to-day basis? Signal analysis, algorithms, and physiological systems. Uh, hearts, heart, nerves, uh, blood pressures.
2: James, can I just add you a, a quick a, a quick clarification question? So are you, you you said you got a degree in psychology, right? Or
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, don't don't get don't get me wrong. That's a long, long background in there.
2: Okay, but now, but you identify more now as, you know, forget about the, the, the psycho, uh, but just physiologist, like you're just like, you're into, in, into physiology, period. Yep, 100%. Okay, so hence the, and right now, are you employed in a physiology lab or a
0: psychophysiology lab? Uh, It's a psychophysiology lab. Um, I'm one of the few people who can say I really genuinely like the guy that I work for. Um. I enjoy his company through to, we have congruent views on the way that things should be done. While at the same time, he is a successful and aggressive kind of academic. He's not afraid to go after big ideas, ask for lots of money, kick on doors, do a thing, put himself in, etc. right? Neither of us suffer from a particular lack of modesty. So it's, it's, a, it's a good congruent environment. And I have have my own freedoms, I work on problems that mutually affect both of us, and it's ideal. So the
1: part that I'm still a little fuzzy on is how you moved from uh, looking at research in your own kind of topic area to more broadly looking at kind of shoddy statistics or reporting errors or what have you across the psychology literature because you're not a psychologist, really. You don't care about psychology, really. So, how did that happen?
0: I, I I care I care a bit. It would be more true to say I care much more strongly about some other things, and I can actually point to that 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 was actually a specific moment. Um, I started talking to Nick Nick Brown. I've told people this before. Everything is basically Nick's fault. Um, I I started talking to Nick purely out of circumstance because uh i knew his supervisor and obviously you know you you, you talk to people you have conversations etc i asked him for something and he said by chance do you know anything about hrv heart rate variability the my reply to which was my, my thesis is called methodological improvements in heart rate variability you know nothing about is, it Which is, yeah, so basically, I don't fuck all, basically. It's a a very, very smart-ass way of saying yes. And he said, what do you think of this paper? And he sent it to me. And uh, it was was reasonably awful rather than robustly awful at first glance. And um, I said that and wrote back. And he had all these other issues with it. And that turned into... Uh, a, 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 a series of discussions that we had about um, a paper that I suppose now is, uh, when would that have been? A paper that we ended up writing, yeah, which was essentially a, a, a letter that was published in 2015. So a little bit why is called The Illusory Upward Spiral. So look, I think I think that really was the start of it, the idea that if you if you drill very heavily into something that you may well find you may well find a house of cards kind of situation, you you may find a variety of problems, you you may find some real something that you you feel like you can't ignore. And the other forcing factor was obviously at this point in time I didn't feel in any way kind of connected to Trying to trying to keep up an appropriate psychological kind of face, yeah. I just uh, I just didn't care. I was oh well, someone 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 in the greater psychological research etc. Could make yourself difficult. Mm, I don't I don't really mind. You know, I I don't I don't see I don't see my future going that way at all. Hmm. That's really I I think that's super interesting. So,
2: okay, so you're. Obviously very smart. Uh you've got lots of expertise in, in in uh in physiology, and you care about about getting things right, but you're not necessarily invested in the domain itself. So you're you're free to criticize, right? You're like, you know, for example, if I criticize someone uh and that someone is powerful, someone who is more senior than I is a gatekeeper in the field. Like I I will think, you know, long and hard before I put out a tweet or write uh, a review with my name signed. I mean, I would I would hesitate. Um but you've got a uh, you've got freedom. Uh and that's yeah, that's that's really interesting.
1: Yeah, in a way this comes back to what we've talked about with politics, right? Where you said in particular you feel uncomfortable talking about some things and there's not like you're not going to be formally, you know, sanctioned, but people might change their view of you. Right. And that's uncomfortable when those are your friends or close colleagues, people you're going to see around a lot. I think in general, it's remarkable that uh, academics, I feel like have this press as being so open-minded and willing to disagree. And yet they strike me as the most kind of small C conservative people you can imagine. They just do not like to rock the boat, Mm -hmm. right? Criticize the wrong people, say the wrong things. And you know, people are going to say bad things about you. You might not get invited to give a talk, whatever. And that's a scary prospect maybe. Yeah. You know what I've heard uh, now from a few separate sources?
2: professors being described, academics being described as cowards. Uh, and I've even, like, they, one of our podcasts even said to myself, said to myself as a coward. Um, and I think, yeah, we're, we're, we're too worried about like what our, um, our brothers and sisters in in the academy are going to think about us, right? Whether it be about our research, whether it be about our politics, whether it be about anything. And in some ways, like, you know, having just caring a little bit less might make our field a lot, lot better. Um, and it seems like James, you're like in this. But well, why? Why is why don't you care? Why don't you give a shit about what people think of? Think about you. Think about your criticism. Think about you know, you're saying like I don't care about psychology. I mean, because uh, you're 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 gonna leave. You're not gonna leave ac-
0: academia. Like, w- yeah. Why don't you care? Well. I suppose there's two component answers to that. One of the things is, I think your primary focus in any PhD situation should not be publish all the right stuff or meet all the right people. It should be develop the best possible skills. And I don't even necessarily mean the most marketable skills. I mean, you should have a skill set that you can fall back on that is valuable anywhere. I've always, I'm always a bit disheartened when someone like, oh, I did a PhD in history and it's totally useless. Didn't you read, you told me once you read five books in a week and you actually understood them. Do you think there's absolutely nowhere in the whole world where someone's trying to form a policy with mounds of complicated information where they couldn't use you? It just, it just requires you to change your focus somewhat. You know, is people who go? Oh, I couldn't ever possibly do that job. while simultaneously bitching that they don't like the job that they've got now. Oh, yeah, but it's the right kind of one. It's a mindset. Like, like I said, if you're if you're focused on the fact that there's a way out. If it all, if it look, if it all, if it all falls on its ass and falls in a heap tomorrow, you know, if like, no one in your field will ever talk to you ever again. If 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 you if you suddenly become a horrible pariah. Are you, are you going to die? Are you going to get kicked down a flight of stairs? Is a, is a, a mule going to follow you home? I've heard that's bad luck in some cultures. Um. Okay,
2: okay, I get it, but that's, that's a bit unfair, no? Uh, sure, none, none, of that, none of that shit's going to happen to you, but uh, you lose
0: face. Right, you. Uh... Yeah, I'm not big on face. I mean, look at the size of the one I've got. I've got plenty to spare. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that that's fair. Uh, no, look ser- seriously. If there's if you if you if you feel like that, you've got the inalienable ability to do something for money. The the idea that you could be frozen out of some place that doesn't want you is less intimidating than you might think. That's my attempt to be like reasonable and concise about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That makes sense, right? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, look, it, yeah. makes, it makes it makes a lot less sense to people who are life I'm sure everyone's got that they've got that one professor in mind. And oh wait, why, why why can't they just get with the reform of XYZ? Why are they why are they so uh diffident and difficult when it comes to dealing with this particular problem? And I don't think they, I think at some point in time, they lost the imagination to think that they could do anything else, and to think that they could change anything about what actually surrounds them. Uh, Yeah, okay. But I mean, how old are you, James? Well, that's a very personal question. A lady never tells her age (laughs) in 36.
2: (laughs) 36. Okay, so you're 36. Now, imagine you're 56, and you've been doing this for, you're not dabbling. I'm not saying you're dabbling, but you know, you're- your, your heart is half in it, right? I mean, you are you don't identify with psychology, but let's say you do, uh, and you're not 56. You're 66. Uh, I mean, that's a lot harder. Right? It's a lot, I mean, I'm all for criticizing well, if you, if people. You're,
0: if you're 66 and you're working in science, you can't get sacked, can you? No, no, no one's talking you about can't, getting get, sacked. You can't, you, yeah, you can't get kicked down a flight of stairs. People, they have completely different fears. If you annoy someone when you're a postdoc you might not get your contract renewed you might not ever get an academic job in the first place I'm not I'm not particularly concerned with a 66-year-old person's fears
2: Okay so I met a few people at SIPS young people who um I think they there was a lack of empathy among I mean I love the many I I, I love pretty much everyone I met it was it was a fabulous meeting I had such a great time um but I had more than one conversation with people who couldn't understand someone who was like 66, okay? 60, 55, whatever it is. Um who had been working yeah, they're tenured. Yeah, they 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 they're not going to lose their job. No one's talking about losing their job. No one's talking about in a way real ramifications. Um but their identity is so wrapped up in this stuff that I think because of that, it makes it practically impossible for them to admit that they fucked up, that, they're, that all they've worked on is, you know, on, on, on really shaky foundations. Um, I just think it's so threatening for people to do that. Um, so, I, I mean, I think they should. I, I, I think they should do the right thing. But I do have empathy
0: for them. Nonetheless. I, f- I feel like you did that a bit yourself. Did you not? I think there was a, you you yourself experienced some kind of reckoning and you managed to transition through this process while being a mature adult about how you saw new information in the light of what you previously thought was accurate That's true but because okay, so I'm 46 okay and I think uh well you look every day at 42 <laughs> I think I look younger than you sir He's got a point, listeners. He's got a point. <laughs>
2: um, so, uh, uh, so I am forty-six, and I've been doing this for twenty, let's say, twenty some odd years, uh, plus or minus. Uh, and I think I am at this like weird position, right, where uh, I could have easily, kind of, you know, had the 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 admission of error be so incredibly threatening that I wouldn't go there. But I'm young enough that like I still have like you know another 20 years ahead of me or more. Uh, but it's like I can still do it, right? Uh I think and you know, I'm glad I made the decision I did. I think I mean at the end of the day, I'm a scientist, I want to do the right thing. I I
0: I'm a seeker of truth as much as I want to approximate truth. Okay. But Okay. But, and that that particular rationale falls off for people who are older than you because of the investment. No, it doesn't. But I think they have competing motives.
2: Now they've got like legacy. Now they've got like, what have I, you know, existential, right? It's like, what have I contributed, right? So uh, let me just tell you one quick story and then maybe we can move on. Um, so I was at a meeting last week in in Munich and uh, we'll decide if we keep this in later because maybe I'll be revealing things. I'm not sure. Um, so it was actually outside of Munich in the Alps. And it was a it was a conference that was mostly younger people, uh, so people who were kind of pro reform, pro like you know a new ways of doing things, um, and I only found out about this two weeks before we actually showed up. And I, my talk was prepared; I already knew what I was going to talk about. And would you know it? Roy Baumeister is there. He's there um, with uh, like you've heard of compliment sandwich, I'm sure, you know, like say one nice thing, then say the critical thing, then say a nice thing. The way the talks were set up was an insult sandwich. It was like criticism, right by meister criticism. Um, anyway, so he was there and I've got to say, like, even though I spar with him intellectually and I think is, you know, some of his ideas are incorrect and or many of his ideas are incorrect. Um, uh, I, I have to say, I felt empathy for him, like he i th- I think it was after this meeting that I mean he was saying things like twenty five years of my life I've gone down the toilet, um I've done nothing. what have I done? what have I contributed what what's the point of me right? That's how he was feeling um now i it was kind of a weird place for me. I'm trying to console him, I'm trying to be like dude, like uh, yes. The empirical basis of what you've done is no good, okay? Um, we need to start over. I really think we just start over. But I don't want to take away all that you've done. Like you've contributed ideas. The fact that you were interested in this got other people interested in this topic. And now we're, yes, we're discarding like your empirical stuff. But because you got into it, we're into it. And we're now refining your ideas, which sometimes means discarding your ideas. But without you, we wouldn't have been maybe going in this direction. Um, Anyways, all this is to say is, uh, yeah, I I felt for him. I really did feel for him. And I understand the reluctance. Like, do do you see what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, of course I see what you're saying. Several points arise from that. Actually, extremely interesting story. I I very rarely get to meet famous people because uh, I live in a basement and I'm beaten daily. The first point is, it makes me wonder how healthy for science and for people the idea of legacy building is in the first place. If you're going to be put on a pedestal and your ideas are going to be the important ideas and everyone is going to agree that what you've done needs to be protected somehow that you're supposed to represent a legacy in the first place your incentive to keep it intact is tremendous and if circumstances being what they may for one reason or another it could be anything to a typo or your complete inability to understand the theoretical basis of the world around you both of which have happened to major theories i might add it could be either of those things, but at some point in time, your, your desire to keep it all together is going to be a consequence of the idea that you were put on that pedestal in the first place. It may not even be something that you did. It may be a, it may be a circumstance, it may be a consequence of something. It may simply be how you reflexively understood the idea of, I need to be an important academic. The best way to do this is for me to be central to the process, etc etc. I don't know how many I, I really I always ins- assume circumstances or incompetence over malice and circumstances first, those were in order circumstances incompetence, malice, right? This is where well, If you if you if you if you're kicking papers to pieces, the vast majority of the time you're you're doing it because something's something's really dire. Something's gone really seriously badly. So, I don't actually feel like I know very much about how uh, questionable research practices in the normal sense work. I know an awful lot about really questionable research practices. Right, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, so. You, it's 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 interesting that you're reflecting on that in that context. Is de, 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 dehumanising anyone in in that environment is super dangerous to what you feel like you're doing. Mm-hmm. Zealotry is not a good idea in any form. It's the idea of something, 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 something is reflexively true. Do you know who I had a tremendous amount of empathy for? I can tell you my own story about this, but I didn't get to meet anyone. But you know who I had a tremendous amount of empathy for? Tell me, a- Amy Cuddy. Mm-hmm. I saw her speak at APS. I was—I mean, it was in Boston. Oh, it's just oh, don't don't chase me down, APS. I just walked into the room because I thought it'd be interesting. I didn't actually go to the conference, like I said. I'm not a psychologist. Look, I have i would never been never been much involved with all of the. I mean, there's a all this fuss about power posing. I never I never paid a great deal of attention to it. It feels like something that's happened around me for ages and ages. But seeing her, she she presented a talk, and the talk was a P curve. Analysis of how all the power posing in history had ever worked Something, something, something And I remember very few of the details Because I was just struck by the fact that she looked Anxious And pale And upset She didn't She didn't coordinate She didn't coordinate things right She felt off I don't think anyone ever left that auditorium going Oh yeah, we told her it was more sort of, this feels like a woman under pressure. Now, look, I've always assumed that criticism has consequences, probably because I've been criticized so much. Um, it gives you it gives you a little bit of uh, it gives you a little bit of insight into what's happening on the other side. I always assume there's a person on the other end of the process, and it was an experience that very much brought it home. Now, everyone assumes that the person that they don't like to some degree. Is acting in bad faith, rather than the fact that they have a series of competing motivations, and they have an emotion that they can't contain about what they want to do, and it's overtaking. It's overtaking the way that they think about it.
2: That's a yeah, that's a really interesting story. I mean, I think I, I think there is an impression that critics, data thugs, uh, data terrorists, uh, destructive <laughs> critics,
0: terrorists, yeah, uh,
2: methodological terrorists, uh, destructive critics, um. That there is no
0: empathy, right? Um, <laughs> they are they're they're, they're 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 hiding in the alleyway with a big bat made of numbers. Well, I mean, <laughs> right? I mean,
2: even the, the names. The names connote like some lack of caring, some lack of. I
0: mean. Uh, yeah, because, because it's a silly name that I made up in the middle of the night, Mickey, that has absolutely no bearing or relevance. I, I, made, I, made a, a, I wrote a whole article about it immediately before Sips that was sort of, I, I, I don't know what to do with this stupid goddamn name. It's a, it feels like it's outlived its usefulness. But there's actually the role that you play when you aggressively prosecute the problems that you find in published science has no name. It's not a thing that you can do. There is no, everything else has a system and a reward and something that you get. Even if it's a pat on the head or a line in your special little CV, it's, it's, it's a thing. It's measured. The idea that there's a terrible theory and that you can go out and hit the terrible theory with a big stick made of numbers. And then everyone else stops wasting their time and money on it because it's demonstrably problematic does not have a name. Mm-hmm. It exists in a vacuum, mm-hmm. so someone can come up with a I I would, I would. Uh, you can call me a data snowflake if you want. The important thing, the important thing, is the outcome, and the fact that there's no name speaks very highly to how much it's been collectively valued. Maybe because there's some
2: salient examples of real, true assholes um, that sometimes we forget. Like yeah. Y- As a scientist, we're like, we've got this tension, you know, like we mentioned this in the last podcast, uh, I was coming out tomorrow, um, this one tension that I feel in my life between get, you know, getting it right and getting along, right. Between like truth, seeking truth and being nice. And as a scientist, those things fucking collide too often and it's painful. Um, and it's good to hear, I think that, uh, even a self-professed data thug, is, yeah, you're still you're still humanizing the people you're criticizing. You're realizing
0: it's going to hurt them. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It, look, I don't, I don't, I don't even have a, a strong dose of this. But Nick, Nick has a horrible. There's there's no one who triple and quadruple checks results and assumptions like Nick does. I think he 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 thinks very carefully about. I mean, I. You have to be ultra careful when you set yourself up as the role of the, the the kind of critic with no name. You have to be real, real careful. Imagine imagine if you went out on a limb and said something was really seriously problematic and you yourself had screwed up horribly. I mean, everyone immediately raises the question of why is he out in public being horribly critical in the first place? It just makes you sound like a complete bastard. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's.
2: I, I think that's important to remember because I don't think, from the outside, we don't see that, right? We don't see the diligence. We don't see the care. We don't see like the painstaking man. Should I, should I publish the blog post? Should I, should I tweet that thing? Like, no, like, I mean, you guys are careful. You guys are thinking about it. And that's, I think that's, that's lost. That's, 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 that's invisible.
0: Yeah. And the, the, the other thing is there's nothing more frustrating than being painted into the corner of the wild eyed psychos of the internet criticize xyz you know they turn up and ah oh, your research has shit and you should be run over by a tractor and i hate you and how dare you be a woman and breathe oxygen and shit all of those people who turn up and uh, if there's any of them listening if there's people who are kind of like un- unmoderated critics who do that under the banner of science it's a quick quick personal message i hope you leave this in in the edit please fucking stop you make my life really difficult. You make the life of everyone who actually wants to do serious criticism because science should be criticized to its own ends. You make that much harder to do. Science,
2: science breathes on criticism. We have no air without criticism, without like self-skepticism. We are, we are, we're not science.
0: We're not science if we don't do that. So we need people like you. All right, and you need to tell that to every sixty-six-year-old professor that you meet, and try try not to let them punch you in the chops.
2: I've got a heart, man. It's hard, man. But you see, no, someone. I'm, like-
0: not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to put the responsibility on your shoulders. I'm saying. I'm saying that that this. And look, people people will overreach in the service of an idea. Everything. Everything swings further than it should when it comes to one side or the other. I have no idea whether or not we're there yet, but everything it swings from one side to the other. When someone figures out a central idea is bogus, they try and unpull it as much as possible, right? And you end up with you don't you don't want to have no French Revolution? Yeah, Louis the, Louis the Fourteenth was a real prick, right? But the answer's probably not Robespierre. It's probably not. Pulling everyone to pieces with carts in the town hall, and it's not just the it's not just the human factor of should we be should we be slightly more civil to people as much as the, you're going to take an idea and run off the end of the earth with it because you think ev- you, you think every consecutive idea is justified by the previous thing and you go oh, at, the, at the people say like we should pre-register everything, no we shouldn't you donkey, <laughs> it's like any anyone look there's whole there's whole of biologists in any reasonable research institution who laugh in your face super hard if you say that no you shouldn't take away oh, everything should be calm down and breathe and make the changes that you can make
1: so um let's take a break and pour some shots <laughs> Hi there, listeners. Yoel here. I just wanted to give you a little bit of context for what we're going to be talking about in the last part of the show. James and some co-authors recently published a paper in the open access journal PeerJ called The Voluntary Control of Piloerection." It's about a fascinating topic. Namely, there are some people who are able to give themselves goosebumps at will. And this paper is about those people. Now, we're going to have a link to this paper in the show notes. So if you're interested, you can check it out there. Okay, back to our show. We're back. I'm going to just take a moment really quickly to tell you about where you can find us. So the easiest way is probably on Twitter where we're at 4 beers Pod. Our DMs are open so you can send us a DM whether we follow you or not. You at mention us, we'll see it. If you prefer email, you can email us at 4 at gmail.com. That email goes to both of us. And our website, as always, is 4 where you can find our extensive archive of past shows. Um, I believe you can also send us a message from there as well that should go to us.
2: And uh, one thing I'd like to encourage is uh, you know, rate us. Rate us on iTunes, on Stitcher. It helps other people find us. And uh, we appreciate the feedback. Uh, positive or negative, that's fine. Uh, yeah, please you know, take the time. If you enjoy what we're doing, uh,
0: rate us. If you hate what we're doing, rate us too. No, don't, don't rate them if you hate what they're doing. Lie. These men <laughs> need a profile. <laughs> what, were you, what were you just holding over there, James? Oh, uh, you asked if I had
2: any tequila, fella, so. Oh. What, uh, turn it around. What, what, what,
0: what, are, we, what are you drinking? Is that Patron? No. Is it Patron? <laughs> oh, my. I have I have literally 10 minutes to swear and queued up for the answer to that question. No, it's not. Uh, it's Olmeca Altos. It's a perfectly decent pouring shelf tequila. Um, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. The vast majority of the time in this house, it goes into mixed drinks or margaritas. I don't drink a lot of straight tequila because I am not a college woman called Tiffany with nine E's. <laughs> so uh, what am I drinking here, UL?
1: Uh I don't know. It's the kind of tequila you can get at the LCBO. <laughs> Bottom shelf tequila.
0: There you go. Cheers. Yum, yum.
2: This might sound like a complete non, you know, a tangent here, but uh, for me, at least it doesn't. So I'm someone who, when I listen to music, music really affects me uh, emotionally, I mean certain music, but some music really affects me and I, I get goosebumps. I, I just, I have this emotional response to music and, uh, and you've done research on goosebumps, uh, recently, so...
0: Can you tell us about that a little? Well, what what you're talking about in the research sense, um, we split it up into different categories. What you're talking about is what's generally called frisson, which is a a loan word from the French that means shiver. And it's a, a shiver caused by something that isn't actually cold. So I don't know how they make that linguistic distinction, but more power to them. It sounds cool. Right. So it's an overwhelming emotional response, and it is combined with the erection generally on the arms, but everywhere else as well. Let me draw a distinction. Frisson is an emotional experience, and it comes up out of nowhere, and you feel it. You literally experience the emotion. And the reason that voluntary goosebumps are so interesting is because someone can sit around and say, bam, I now have the physical consequence of that. And completely decoupled from the emotion, people who can do uh, like voluntary, voluntary goose flesh or VGP, voluntarily generated erection. VGP, people who can do it, most of them describe doing it as a reflex, like reaching out your arm or squatting down. They say, oh, I just form some tension at the back of my head. And then a feeling goes down my back and then I feel it propagate out to my arms and legs. And then all of a sudden they're there. So all I really do is go, oh, um, feel like goosebumps right now. Three, two, one, go. And there they are.
1: When I uh, read the description of this paper, what I found kind of most striking is that there's really supposed to be no physical route by which your brain can tell your skin to do this, right?
0: So it's kind yeah. of... Like, what the hell's going on? Well, it's obviously a top-down mechanism. I thought you were one of them smitesmologists. Why did you go on that one? Yeah, look, the, the fact that obviously little muscles in skin and big muscles in the somatic control of arms and fingers and shit like that are obviously completely different, right? They're not... Bit, okay, let me, let me put it this way. The, the little muscles that pull hairs upright have no... Direct conscious control, the way that I am, no one will be able to see this, but I'm waggling my finger right now. That has conscious control. That is a striated muscle doing its striated muscle job. Muscles that pull hairs are smooth muscles. There is literally no connection to them that can be understood in the normal somatic neurological pathway. Now, that's odd in and of itself. If you can go clang, look at my goosebumps. But it's slightly less odd in terms of we we recreate a lot of stuff. If I said to you right now, feel scared, feel the sensation of feeling scared. It's it's really difficult to understand saying like hey 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 go out go out and have an emotion, right? Feel feel sick to your stomach right now. Go on, you, you can you can remember what it's like. Some people can re-experience it quite a lot. But the idea that you can say, hey, do this strong physical experience that has obvious emotional correlates, do it right now. And someone can go, yeah, no worries. Clang, done. That's really, that's really odd. And uh, I don't like being coy with my research but i'm working on something else where it's also with a reasonably sensitive population of people and i kind of don't want to drop them in it in case there's any interest whatsoever but again it's about the same topic people who are physiologically unusual in a way that might not have been previously understood or rolled within the scientific pantheon there are so many of these odd things that are personal experiences that we've never told anyone. There are elements of our personal experience we've simply never thought to study. I mean, psychologists always talk about, oh, all the low-hanging fruit is gone, I need to use multi-level models and shove them up my ass sideways. I don't necessarily agree. I just think they're in areas where they're much easier to understand what's interesting and special about them if you understand them from the perspective of this is a physiological phenomena rather than this is a psychological phenomena. There's probably people who do neuroscience who agree with me. At least I hope there are. Can I guess what this uh, this next group is? Can, uh,
2: can you confirm it if I guess correctly?
0: I No, no. I'll give you two guesses. I'll confirm it if you get it right. And there's a 0% probability you're going to get it right. Go. Okay. Uh, sneezing on command. No. Why would that? Why would anyone have a problem with that being? With oh, I can sneeze on command. Get him. Throw him into a lake. All Is right, a can can, can.
1: can I have the the last guess?
0: Are you gonna can go? Yep. I,
1: I have one. Yeah. Orgasm on command.
0: That's not a thing. <laughs> That's what you think. And what? And. And unless unless Are you there's something you can you're really not well? No, but I am very quick. <laughs> <laughs> See, y- you don't notice the latency because the man is kind of quick on the trigger. So if I could just ask
1: you to speculate about the goosebumps, just for one more question. The fact that like some people can do this readily, and it's not like they're putting themselves into a like emotional state, like in a method acting kind of way. It's just like no, I'll, I'll just raise my finger,
0: right? It's just like that. You have hit. You have hit on the key distinction at the middle of this that makes it so interesting. There, I, I've had contact with a few people who say something like, if I imagine something really terrible, I can re-experience something that will allow me to have the physical sensation of this thing happening. That is a couple of people, right? The overwhelming majority, I'd say 90 plus percent of the people who've contacted with me, and I have a mailing list of people who can do this now. It has 90 people on it right so we're gonna we're gonna kick off some much more I am going to'm we're, we're not fucking about here i've got to I've got to you know I'm going to keep the open science flag way high I'm going to try and find as many of these people as possible and it is hard work right I'm not building a marketing list I'm reaching out to every single person personally having a conversation with them and then asking if they'd like to participate in future research maybe properly. so I need a mailing list that's probably twice the amount of people who are going to sign up Right, and then I need to, and then I want to pre-register what's actually going to happen in the studies. So basically, as a thing to research from that perspective, it sucks. Much easier to research is a physiological phenomenon because you need like half a dozen people and some probes in an hour and a half. Done. Love it. How good's physiology? Um, what you're describing is a few people. The vast majority of them go, oh, yeah. Uh I thought everyone could do that. I beg your pardon, you thought everyone could give themselves goosebumps right off the bat? Yeah, I thought it was perfectly normal. Look, I just tense this thing at the back of my head. Hey, look at that. There they are. I can make them go away again. Watch this. Clang. Yeah? They're not trying to... there's, There's no kind of emotional crowbar that's making them go up. They simply understand this in terms of where do they distribute tension within... Some craniofacial thing, and then it happens. So, if you had to guess, would you say
1: these folks who can do this actually are physiologically different somehow? They have some yes, that's connection exactly that what most I'd of guess. us don't.
0: Yeah, yeah, I would. I would guess that. And I've had maybe half a dozen people try to explain to me how it should work if I could do it, and I spent an awful lot of time staring at a wall, going. <laughs> Nope, that's definitely not it. That's a that was a terrible noise. That was a terrible noise. Uh, it was supposed to be a noise of effort. It sounded like a noise of I eat too many pies in the night. And so,
1: generally, as as I understand it, you probably would know more about this than me. People who can change, let's say, uh, things that are controlled by the autonomic nervous system, like a heart rate that takes a lot of training. You don't just wake up and you're like, oh yeah, lower my heart rate for you, no problem. Like you you need to work out. Yeah.
0: it, right? That research, that research is sufficiently woolly. And there's enough of it over a long enough period of time that I don't think it's absent, but enough of the people who did it were wide-eyed hippies that I can't like regurgitate it in its full context and expect it to be accurate there's yeah but what you're describing when you're talking about oh people in the meditative traditions have things like conscious heart rate control yes they do they don't fall off the back of a van and go hey suddenly i can do heart rate control but the way people describe goosebump control is how old were you when you think you would uh, discover it i had a conversation with a guy the other day he said i was definitely four because it was right around my birthday and then i discovered i could do the thing Right. Ain't no, ain't no meditative tradition going into a four-year-old, is you know? They want dinosaur nuggets and to, to to hit their friend over the head with a toy lion. I know what four-year-olds are like. They're essentially they're essentially macaques that have been shaved. I think this is this is perfect. So
1: I uh, I feel like we've kept you from your dinner for long enough.
0: Ah, I probably should eat. You'll be horrified by this, but it's half ten and I have work to do. Uh it's a project that's due sort of now tomorrow and i'm solely responsible for it and i solve all the problems because that's my job but when it's solved uh i will take that attitude and i will wear it like a mantle of success
1: well thank you even more for fitting us in
0: oh come on this is this is the only proper fun i've had all day
2: what are you talking about well that's us too i mean I, i but but seriously i mean it's not like you've been like knee deep in work and uh not uh, maybe not the most enjoyable
0: part of your summer. Yeah, well, I'm gonna be up half the night anyway. I might as well have a couple of hours off to fucking chat shit and help out. I look, I hope there's some good stuff there. I know I'm sort of um even maybe maybe slightly slightly less focused than usual, <laughs> which which isn't isn't saying a great deal, is it? But look, I I know you're good, You're gonna you're gonna have a fucking cock of an editing job after all that.